All right, well, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark 10, and we're going to be looking at the passage we looked at last week, same passage. We're going to keep digging, digging and digging, and we're going to find that there's so much relevance here for marriages and families and relationships with people who are close to you. And I want to start by um, I was reminiscing a little bit as I prepared this sermon back to... I think it was the summer of 2007. I had this girl that I really liked. Her name was Ashley. And I wanted to marry her. And so I worked up the courage to call her father. And we planned a Starbucks date. It's actually the the, uh, Starbucks over here off campus. And uh, I was super nervous. I, I was, you know, jittery a little bit and was going to meet with Ashley's father and I was going to ask if I could marry his daughter. And so we, we sat down together at an outside table and I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to word it. I'm, I'm, my heart's beating a hundred miles an hour and, and we sit down. I don't even know if we got anything to drink. We just were sitting down outside and I began talking about the weather. Um, nice day, man. Great day. Great day. And he, he's kind of humoring me. And he knows exactly what I'm there to do. Well, eventually, he gets to the point. He goes, Eric, did you want to ask me something? <laughs> it just wasn't coming. I, I just didn't know how to you know, make the conversation switch to that topic. So he just kind of cuts through it all. He goes, you want to ask me something? And, and finally, I, I go, yeah, I, I want to ask if I can marry your daughter, Ashley. And we talk. We begin talking at that point, and he, he of course, says yes, and uh, you're allowed to, and Ashley is my wife. And, um, but, but as we began having that conversation after he said that I would be allowed to marry his daughter, we began talking, he just wanted to kind of prod and, and ask how much I really understood marriage and how much I knew what I was getting into. And he began describing to me you know, some of the difficulties of marriage and some of the hard things that, that come up. And he's been in pastoral ministry for many years, and so he's seen a lot and he's helped people through things. And um, I'm listening, and I don't know if you get any more naive than I was at that moment, because one of the things I responded to, or how I responded to what he was saying, I said to him, you know, how hard could it be? I'm like, come on, like, you know me, Ashley, like, we fit together. Like, how hard could it be? We come from good families. How hard could it be? And he, he's a, a, a happy, jovial man, and uh, he, caught really, he got really serious right in that moment. And he looked at me. I will never forget what he said in that moment, confronting how naive I was. He said to me, it could be the hardest thing you ever do. And those words have stuck. Now, Ashley and I have had a good marriage, and it's been a tremendous blessing, but I have come to see that he is absolutely right. That marriage can be one of the most difficult things you ever go through. That marriage can be, and is, intended by God to be a blessing and a joy, and at the same time, we know that the enemy loves to take God's greatest blessings, pervert and corrupt them, and attack them, and so the greatest things can often become the most challenging things, difficult things. 
And I've seen how it could happen that a marriage turns into a war zone and every conversation is a battle and every word is like a knife. And there have been cases where marriages have descended into misery. And, and sometimes we come and hear these sermons about the joys of marriage and, and we're going, man, marriage is supposed to be a gift. Uh, did, it, did it come with a receipt? Can I return this thing? Is, what's the policy on this? Is this not what I expected? What's going on here? It can be incredibly hard. And we might ask ourselves, as we kind of are in this text where Jesus is laying the foundations of marriage, why is it so hard? If it is meant to be this blessing that God has given it, why is it true that it can really become a challenging trial in our lives? The easy answer, of course, would be to say, well, we'll sin. You know, we're sinners, two sinners living under the same household. It complicates things, right? Sin makes everything more difficult. But let's be a little more specific. What is it? What is the problem? And the the best analogy that keeps coming to mind as I think about marriages that are challenging and difficult is um, often there are, especially in in Christian households, there are um, genuine believers trying to make this thing work. And what has happened is they have begun to build a marriage without using God's blueprints. Uh, they've seen marriages. They maybe saw one in their house growing up with their parents, or they've seen others, you know, people married. And so they go, okay, that's a marriage. And they begin to try to put together their marriage. But what they're doing is similar to a person who's seen a house. And so you go, okay, I can build a house. You go to the, the store, you grab a bunch of lumber, you grab a bunch of tools, you go to a plot of land, and you start trying to construct a house. Like it might look like a house, but there's going to be things wrong with that house. You're not going to want to live in that house. That house is going to be dangerous. And there are people who are trying to build a marriage. And in in one sense, you say, yeah, they have a marriage. It looks like a marriage on the outside. But really, the foundations uh, have not been built rightly. And the blueprints have not really been applied. And so we go to Mark chapter 10. I hope you're there. And this is what has happened so far. The Pharisees have come up to Jesus. And they're trying to stump him. Remember, they came up to test Jesus there in verse 2. Uh, They asked him that question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They want to get him in hot water. Remember, Herod is in this this local region. And so they want to, uh, you know, maybe get Jesus on Herod's radar so that Herod would take care of Jesus for them. He answered them, verse 3, what did Moses command you? So Jesus is taking them back to the Pentateuch, back to the law, back to the scriptures. They respond by saying, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and sent her away, which is a corruption and a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24. We looked at that last week. Deuteronomy 24 regulated divorce. It did not allow divorce. And so Jesus responds to that with verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, what Deuteronomy was talking about was uh, regulating their sinful habits, regulating their hard-hearted habits of divorce by giving them some stipulations that needed to be in place. And then God, or Jesus replies, continuing on what he's saying, but... Let's not go to Deuteronomy where you're corrupting this law. Let's go to the very beginning of creation. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now that's what we started talking about last week. From the beginning, God made them male and female. And then he goes on to say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together to let not man separate. Now I want to point out there that I think there are four foundational elements to a marriage that are being described here. 
First, it's the gender. We talked about that last week. God made them male and female. Second, it's the principle or the blueprints of marriage of leaving, cleaving, and weaving or leaving your old family, holding fast to your wife and the two becoming one. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And then there's the issue of providence, what God has joined together, and then the idea of permanence, let not man separate. So we're looking at gender, marriage, providence, and permanence over the next few weeks. Last week was male and female are designed by God to be male and female. And last week we spent a lot of time unpacking what it means to be male and what it means to be female. And we looked in the early chapters of Genesis to unpack what is a male made in the image of God. What are they designed like? What are they designed for? And what is a female made in the image of God? What are they made like? How are they designed? What are they for? What does it mean that these people exist how has God designed them that's what God was or Jesus was pointing to this this gender design now in our society we got to answer this question because the question comes up you know the marriage is male and female and someone is thinking you know what about male and male is it okay if a female marry a female is this okay this is the question our society is answering the the reason we have to address this is because we need to know what God has to say about this. Um, I, don't, I don't have, you, know, you don't care about my opinion. Uh, you, we shouldn't care about each other's opinions. We shouldn't care about the society and what the society has to say about this issue. We should really be concerned, though, about what God has said, right? What God has said about the issue of homosexuality is incredibly important because if God speaks, God speaks what is true. If God is true and if he is good, then we need to know and understand and apply what he has said about marriage and about male and about female. And so we're going to just unpack this answer to this question real quick because it's that important. So can a man marry a man? Well, the answer to that question is no, based on the definition of marriage given by God In Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and then reiterated here by Jesus, that God designed marriage to be consisting of a male and a female. That is the definitional to marriage. That if you were to try to take a man and a man and to marry them, whatever it is that they're doing, cohabitating, that is not a marriage. Not by God's definition. That is not a marriage. Their relationship is not a marriage. Well, what about homosexuality in general? We leave the question out of whether it's a marriage or not a marriage. Does God look and approve homosexuality? Does God look and affirm this as a good expression of who God made people to be? That's the fundamental question is what does God say about this topic? Is God unclear? Is, is God, you know, vague about this? There have even been some prominent Christian leaders saying God whispers about this thing. He's not really clear on it. And so we Christians don't need to be really all that dogmatic about it. However, the reality is that the scriptures are actually very clear about this. Uh, the scriptures are actually very clear about whether God approves of homosexual behavior or if he does not. There are several passages that address this, and I'm going to list them for you. You can go study them further in detail if you'd like. (laughs) If you want a whole entire other sermon on this, we could absolutely do that. And I had to think about how much do we include here, but I'll simply say this. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1 all address the issue of homosexuality head 
on and they address it in no uncertain terms. And there are more passages that allude to it are less direct. And let me briefly go through each one of those passages and say what they say about the issue of homosexuality. Genesis 19 is the section about Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot and the two angels are in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the men of that city want to come in, uh, come around their house and they're asking that the men would be released from their house that they might know them. And it is clearly an evidence of homosexual desire out of control. Jude chapter 7 uh, is reflecting on that And he writes, Jude writes, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, this is verse 7, and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve in his example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That word unnatural desire in Greek is the idea, it could be literally translated strange flesh. It's the idea of men having unnatural desires, going after that which God has forbidden. That's Genesis 19. Leviticus 18 and verse 20 both teach that in Israel, uh, homosexual sex was a capital crime and it was punishable by death because it was an abomination to God. Romans chapter 1 teaches that erotic homosexual relationships are the expression of idolatry in the sinful human heart when they exchange God's design for their own lustful passions. So they exchange what is natural for that which is unnatural. Men having unnatural desires for other men and women unnatural desires for other women. That is very clear in Romans chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 uh, include homosexuality in a list of sins It is a vice list, what it's often called, of things that must be repented of in order for someone to be right with God. This doesn't mean that no one will ever struggle with any of those sins. Even as a believer, it's possible to repent, to trust in Christ, and to genuinely struggle with uh, temptation and bad desire. But those vice lists in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 are describing People whose lives are characterized by certain sins. And in 1 Corinthians 6 in particular, the one who is committed to a homosexual lifestyle unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what the Bible teaches. It is crystal clear. Bible scholar Robert Gagnon published a massive 522-page in-depth study. It is a tome on this issue. The title of his book, and man, it's a beast. If you want to really do the the, the work and the study, the the title of the book is called The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. It is a scholarly work. Uh, One scholar commented on the work, a guy named Jurgen Becker, said that this book is the most sophisticated and convincing examination of the biblical data for our time. And his summary conclusion the end of the book, when he studies all the texts and he studies all the issues at play and all the interpretations, the summary conclusion that he makes at the end of this tome is this, quote, Scripture rejects homosexual behavior because it is a violation of the gendered existence of male and female ordained by God at creation. So that is all to lay the foundation, and I wanted to address that because it is an issue in our society that we need to know does the Bible actually speak to this, or are Christians open to, you know, kind of take wherever they, you know, feel is best? 
And there are too many Christians that in the name of compassion, you know, you can commend the compassion, but in the name of compassion have set aside truth and are beginning to speak to this issue as if God's not very clear on it. And we need to remind ourselves, church, that the most loving thing we can do in these situations does not include walking away from what the Bible says. It does not include that. It means standing clear and firm on what God has said is true and right and good. Who are we to say yes where God has said no? Is that wise and good to affirm that which God does not affirm? To call it okay and good, that which God calls sin. It is not good. And any teacher peddling the lie that the Bible teaches that this is a normal and good expression of humanity is putting themselves in the place of God, is acting like the serpent in the garden who said, you shall not die. Church, sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is to stand up and say, there's a judgment coming for sinners. And God has called all sinners to repent and believe in the gospel. And if we don't define sin, then it makes it quite hard for people to know what God is demanding of them and what repentance look like, looks like. So this is one particular sin that in our day is being whitewashed or is being ignored. And so we, we don't want to call it out as if it's some sin that's unforgivable. No, Jesus did mention an unforgivable sin, but it wasn't homosexuality or homosexual desire. In other words, the church needs to stand up on this truth that all are sinners. All have ways that we express our sin. In various ways, in various degrees, we are broken and fallen people. And the gathering of the church is not some gathering of some self-righteous uppity people who don't struggle with sin. We are sinners now. We are justified by faith alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone. But we are not here saying that we are perfect. We struggle with sin. The message of the gospel is that God loves to save sinners. All kinds of sinners. And we read this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul himself said, I'm the chief of sinners. And yet the grace of Jesus Christ abounded for me. He poured it out on me that I might be a trophy of his grace. And so if anyone is here struggling with any kind of sin, whether that be the sin of homosexuality, the sin of adultery, the sin of greed, any kind of sin, these are sins, we've got to call them sins. But listen, there is redemption and forgiveness and grace and healing and transformation in Christ. And when we come to Christ, we leave behind the sins of the past. And yet sometimes as we walk with Christ, those sins can dog us at our heels and yet the posture of the Christian is a posture of humility and constantly looking again to our Lord and Savior, saying, Lord, I need you, I need your grace, I need your guidance, I need your wisdom, but who are we? Who are we to say what God has not said, to affirm what God has not affirmed? And so it is not loving for me to let my daughter ride into the freeway on her bike. Sometimes a warning needs to be given. And the church does need to stand firm on this issue. If you want to study that more in detail, I would encourage you. I have books that I could recommend, uh, some that are more introductory and others that are more in-depth. And I would encourage you to do the work and come to your own understanding of what the Scriptures teach because the Scriptures are crystal clear. So marriage, church, 
is male and female. And Genesis 2.24 then goes, and this is the next part. So Jesus establishes, back to Mark 10, God made them male and female. And then he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one. Okay, we're going to look at three points here. Three points that are right there in the text. Now, I believe that this this sermon is going to be highly relevant for all married couples. For everyone, everyone, because it's God's word, but married couples, I think there's going to be a lot of fodder to talk about at the lunch table today, okay? We're going to have a lot of things to talk about. And I hope this will create good things. And so one of the things we did is in your bulletin, we put a handout in, and on one side of it, there is a guide that can be used by you married couples to talk through with your spouse. Now, don't start looking through it now, all right? That's going to come later. Take that home if you find it helpful and use it as a guide because I firmly believe that the feathers will be ruffled this morning, but there's going to be more work to be done in the homes, okay? And in the conversations, in the families, and that needs to take place for this stuff to really take root. We're going to look at three points, and I'm going to point out the three different principles, and as we go through the three different principles, I'm also going to try to pull out and put before you some of the pitfalls, some of the ways often people fail. It's like we're trying to build this house, but we don't have blueprints. We're trying this. We're trying this. Well, I want to show you here's the mistakes that are pretty common for even Christian couples that end up messing up or making their marriage difficult and more difficult than it needs to be. We're looking at this part, and let's start. Before we even get to these principles, I want to just draw out something right here. Look back at the verse 7 where he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother mother, and hold fast to his wife. We're going to look at that word leave, okay? Usually when we start with this, we talk about the idea of, you know, the, the, the man's need to leave and go establish her own household, and then we start there first, and that's very important, but we're not going to start there because I want to ask you this question. If you're observing the text, where is the, uh, the man supposed to leave from? You see that? Where is he leaving? It says, a man shall leave his father and mother. In other words, the way this man is to be prepared to be married, the way this man is to be prepared to leave is in the context of a household where there's a father and a mother. You see that? The father and the mother are to be preparing this man to be grown up so he can then leave. The environment or the ecosystem where a man is prepared to leave his household is the ecosystem where there are parents involved. And what is the role of the parents? It is to prepare that man to leave his house. I want to highlight this because I think this is a bit of parenting wisdom that God gives us in his word that we often overlook. Parents, what are you trying to do with your kids? What you're trying to do, in large part, is to prepare them to leave the nest. Man, sometimes that's really hard. You got your little baby, you never want them to leave. And sometimes you might have the best motives, but you're really trying to make it so that they stay forever. You're just coaxing them to keep coming back and keep coming back. You don't want them to leave. You want them to stay. In reality, a man shall leave his father and mother. That means mom and dad, be prepared and actually start preparing your children for that role that they will have outside of the nest. 
They need to learn to fly. What that means is that parents need to have a plan with their children where they are proactively teaching them to spread their own wings, to get out and to uh, be self-sufficient in the world that God has made, to be contributing to society and to church. They need to be trained. Who's going to train them? Well, primarily it's mom and dad at home. It's mom and dad at home. But God has given us a church to supplement that and to be a part of that. And the church is also essential to that role. But mom and dad, it is primarily your responsibility to disciple, to equip, and to prepare your children for the time that they will leave. I remember hearing a story. I don't know who said it. Otherwise, I'd quote him. But it's been passed down. It's probably one of those stories that no one actually knows who originated it. It was a story of a farmer who every Saturday would wake up his teenage sons and they would get up early and they'd go out and work in the cornfields. And all the other teenage boys those Saturday mornings would either be sleeping in or doing whatever they wanted. But these boys, they had to work out in the cornfields. And one day, when the neighbors came up to the man who owned the farm, he said, you know what, you could get this equipment. You know, it would make the work so much easier. Your sons could sleep in. The harvest would be just as much. You wouldn't have to worry about bringing in less. And the farmer replied, I'm not raising corn. I'm raising sons. I'm raising them to be hardworking. I'm raising them to know how to get up and control their bodies and self-discipline. I'm raising sons. And I think too few Christian parents have this same mindset. That we are to be actively engaged in raising and preparing them for the world they're going to face. This is a problem in our society that the parents often are not allowing their kids, are not encouraging their kids to grow up. In fact, we have these things called the adolescent years, the teenage years, where sometimes even parents encourage reckless behavior because, you know, you're a teenager, that's what teenagers do. Whereas in other cultures prior to ours of this day, a kid would turn 13 and you'd start treating him like an adult. But gone are those days, and so frequently, even in American churches here, we are (laughs) like subsidizing our teenagers to continue acting like kids. And so they stay home, and they never learn responsibility, and they never learn how to make it out in the world. They never are prepared to leave. One senator wrote a book on this problem. He said this, I believe our entire nation is in the midst of a collective coming-of-age crisis without parallel in our history. We are living in an America of perpetual adolescence. Our kids simply don't know what an adult is anymore or how to become one. Many don't even see a reason to try. Perhaps more problematic, the older generations have forgotten that we need to plan to teach them. It's our fault more than it is theirs. So prior to even getting to talk about marriage, we need to have a talk about parents who are raising children to be married. How will those children learn what a marriage is? They're watching us, parents, and they need parents to come along and prepare them and help them and equip them and train them and call them to something worth living and working and dying for. That's what the church needs to help parents do. So that's Talking about parents. Now let's get to the principle here. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother. The first principle is the leave principle. A man should leave his father and mother. See, in a marriage, the man has two parents ordinarily. And the woman has two parents ordinarily. And those two people get married. And often we think that in order for the marriage to work, 
There's got to be the man and the woman coming together, and there's just got to be a lot of harmony, and we don't give much thought to the other four individuals involved, the in-laws. And yet, did you know that if you were to make a list of the top marriage problems, always at the top three will be somewhere in that top three will be trouble with in-laws. Do you know that? I think it's because we don't always apply the leave principle to our marriages. A father and mother raise up that child so that the child can leave home. The man in particular is mentioned by Jesus here is the one who needs to leave father and mother. You say, well, what does it mean to leave your father and mother? It doesn't mean you break off every relationship, you never talk to them again. It doesn't mean you never call them on the phone. It doesn't mean that the, the, the kid who's leaving home should never take any responsibility. Like, I don't have any responsibility toward them. That's not meaning that at all. In fact, if you say you have no responsibility for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5. So it's not saying that. It, it does not mean you abandon them. It does not mean you move out of town or move out of state. You just get far away from them as you can. It's not saying that. Here's what the leave principle means. See, the idea is is that the man is leaving his mother and father. He's coming out from under their authority, and he's establishing his own household now. With a wife, now they will come together, and that will establish their own household. And what that means is for that new married couple, listen to this, the parents are no longer the same kind of authority on the marriage as they were when you were living under the roof. You don't need to be controlled by your parents' opinions anymore. You're no longer dependent on their approval anymore. Your parents are no longer the chief confidants that you have in your life. Your parents are no longer the decisive factor in your decision-making. In fact, a healthy amount of space is required for this to work well. If there's no space, if there are no boundaries, it can lead and often does lead to difficulty and dysfunction in the relationship. Now, if you have kids that are getting married, one of the things that you need to process is this fact right here. If you want to be a burden to the newlywed couple is just try to be overbearing, have all kinds of expectations about how you want them to be at every Christmas and every Easter and every Thanksgiving, and then make sure they know that you're disappointed when they don't show up. Like that will hurt them. And yet sometimes parents out of love, they just want to be near the kids. They want them to stay close. And sometimes what's happening is they're overbearing and they start creating tension in a marriage that space is required. The principle Jesus is getting at is the mom and dad have to let them go. The father and mother have to be left and a new household has to be created. The family has a new head of household. It's a newly married couple with their own responsibility before God. They need to appropriately leave their parents. And if they do not, it will create difficulty in the future. If they don't leave biblically, according to what Jesus is saying here, it will create tension. So here's pitfall number one. The pitfall is that there's no boundaries. Or you could put it this way, there's no space. You can imagine all the scenarios, and I bet some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I mention some of these. One would be the father who still wants to be the authority over his daughter who just got married. Or the daughter who still sees dad as her highest authority, that she's trying to get his approval rather than her own husband and honoring him. Or the wife who is chief confidant, the one she tells everything to is her mom, 
Maybe even she's complaining about her husband to her. Or the mother who still wants to be the only woman in her son's life. That'll create problems. The son who is always talking to his mom about things but not going to his wife. That will create problems. When the parents of the couple have opinions that are so intrusive that it makes decision-making for the couple just incredibly difficult, that creates problems. When there's pressures to act or look a certain way, that creates problems. In other words, when the man leaves, he's got to leave. He doesn't leave love for them. He doesn't abandon them and leave them out the dry. But when he leaves, he establishes his own household over which he must be the head and he must have that authority. And if that is always being questioned and compromised and undermined, it'll make it incredibly difficult in the relationship. So men need to lead in this. Especially when you're establishing your household, you need to lead in these ways. Lovingly, gently, you need to lead in this. I recently heard a a story of a young man who was newly married, and his father-in-law began pressuring him to change churches. Hey, you got to go to this church instead of the one you and my daughter are going to. And he would listen to him, this young man, and finally he had to respond to the father-in-law with a kind of calm firmness. He said, my family is now my responsibility before God. I take that seriously, and my decision is to continue attending this church. It is the church I have chosen for my family, and before God, I think is the right decision to do. I think that's a good example of honoring your father-in-law and yet establishing your own household. And sometimes this is a step that a young man needs to take, is to stand your ground, to lovingly and humbly uh, remind whoever is giving you that authority that this is my responsibility before God. We have to understand that there's a principle that new households need to be established. Now here's the second principle that's right here out of the same passage. So not only must a man leave his father and mother and hold fast But also here, the next part, uh, he must hold fast to his wife. This would be the cleave principle. Cleave means to hold fast. Hold fast to your wife. This is what the husband is doing. He's, He's establishing a new household, and he's doing that by making a commitment, a covenant commitment before God and man to love and hold fast this woman who is his wife? The, the Greek word for hold fast is an interesting word. It's prokalao. It's a strong word. In one Greek dictionary, memorably put it like this. It refers to a sword sticking in the hand of a valiant warrior with the blood of slain enemies. I don't know why the blood part had to be in there, but it made it more graphic, right? It's, it's the idea of when you're going to war, you got to hold fast to your weapon. You don't drop your weapon when the enemies are charging in. You hold that thing as if it's a matter of life and death. That's the word that Jesus is using here when he's describing hold fast to your wife. The word is used again in Acts chapter 5 verse 36 when it's describing a group of men who joined up or held fast to their leader following him into battle. So it's a strong, almost military kind of warrior kind of word that the man, when he's to be married, he grabs hold without a plan of letting go, without second options. He's saying, this is life or death. I'm holding on. This is my commitment. I'm joining up with this woman. She is my wife. 
you cleave to her, you grip to her, you join with her, you commit to her. And having left his parents, his wife becomes his absolute number one priority in terms of human relationships. All the relationships with parents and in-laws become like peer-to-peer because now his wife and her concerns are his chief concerns. Her problems are now his problems that he will be a part of solving. This is where we get this idea of till death do us part. We are not letting go. We are holding fast. It's a covenant before God to live with this woman in holy matrimony. You say, well, what are the, what are the, uh, the pitfalls in this one? Well, there's, there's many, but I'll list two. Here's, here's one pitfall is that we have weak commitment to one another. Just as the marriage will suffer if the couple doesn't appropriately leave the father and mother, so also the marriage will suffer if the couple doesn't properly cleave or hold fast to one another. To cleave appropriately, to hold fast biblically, is to make promises to one another, to make commitment to one another. It is to enter into lifelong covenant with the other person before God saying, I'm not going to leave when it gets hard. I'm not going anywhere. I'm holding on to you as if it's a matter of life or death. And that is to say, no marriage should be entered into half-heartedly or nonchalantly. It shouldn't be thought of something that you can easily go break if it gets inconvenient. There are biblical grounds for divorce. We'll cover those in a future sermon. Uh, But the idea of hold fast is not this idea that um, in the back of my mind, if things just get a little too rocky here, then I'm just going to bow out. Weak commitment leads to insecurity, leads to suspicion, leads to lack of trust, leads to difficulty in marriage. You should never treat your spouse as disposable. You should never threaten to leave. You shouldn't throw out the word divorce as if it's a valid option when you're in a little fight. Rather, the opposite of those things should be regularly taking place, and that is you should be confessing your love for each other, reaffirming your commitment to each other, and making sure that the other one knows that you're in for good, whether they like it or not. You make commitment. Husbands, in particular, work hard to ensure that your wife feels secure in your love. The second pitfall that happens here, and you might be surprised by this one, but it's the pitfall of child-centeredness. You see, the idea of holding fast to your wife is the idea, as I've already mentioned, is that that relationship now becomes the number one priority in your life lives. Before God, obviously God is the all-consuming passion of every one of us. This is what we want, is to live our lives for Christ. But humanly speaking, now our relationship with our spouse is number one. What sometimes happens, it goes wrong with Christians with great intentions, is that they mistakenly make their children the center of their marriage. It's a common problem. When a mother is more concerned about her children than she is concerned about her husband. It's a problem when a husband is more concerned about being Mr. Fun with his children than he is to loving his wife. 
It ends up being not good for the marriage, nor is it good for the kids. There are some couples who get married and they have children, and the children run everything. The couple hardly has a time together at all. They hardly have time to go on dates. They don't make time for one another because they're always dragging one kid from one thing to the next, or they're focused on the kid's needs to the degree where it's not actually helpful for the kids. It's training them to be entitled, and the marriage has nothing working for it because they're not taking any time to be together. Child-centeredness starts with great intentions. It's so easy to drift almost unknowingly to the point where the parents are like butlers following their kids around, and they are slowly but surely seeing their marriage disintegrating because they haven't been proactive to hold each other fast, to prioritize their marriage. This would be something worth talking about with other believers in your life. And this is something on the handout that you've been given. On the back side, there's a diagnostic test that will give you some questions so you can start evaluating, are we child-centric? See, the home doesn't want to be child-centric. It's not good for the kid. It actually doesn't necessarily want to be marriage-centric either. What's it want to be? God-centric. And if God is in the proper priority, then God's word will hold sway over our lives. Parents and marriages will come together as they properly raise up the next generation of children that God has given them. So that's the cleave principle. And we see here there are two potential pitfalls. One is that we make weak commitments, so we're not truly cleaving to one another. The other is we're so child-centered that we're not making any time to hold fast to our spouses. Now let's look at the weave principle, the third principle here. God says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And then it says, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This idea of one flesh often is understood to be pointing to sexual intimacy, and it includes that, but it's actually bigger than that. The one flesh in Hebrew, when you're talking about flesh, you're talking about personhood. Uh, You're talking about people. When he's talking about one flesh, he's talking about the two becoming one as one unit, one, almost one person that God can unite two different people together so intimately that they live together in life as one. It's pointing to a comprehensive partnership that includes all of life, one flesh. Jay Adams puts it this way. He says, referring to the one flesh union, the marriage union is the closest, most intimate of all human relationships. Two persons may begin to think, act, and feel as one. They are able to so interpenetrate one another's lives that they become one, a functioning unit. The third principle here is that after you've held fast, you've made this commitment, the spouse is your number one, then the way the marriage is to be lived out is this idea of weaving your lives together in one flesh union. You weave your life together. You're not meant to live two separate lives, but you got a marriage certificate and you're under the same roof, but you're living two separate lives. No, the one flesh idea is your lives are lived together in harmony that you, like last week's sermon pointed out, are totally different in terms of your design as male and female. 
But as you live together, you are to live with a comprehensive partnership in all aspects of life. So you should share with your spouse an intellectual partnership, thinking together, learning together, sharing together, making decisions together, discussing matters together. There should be an emotional connection where you share your joys and your sorrows and your grief and your pain and life's up ups and life's downs are all shared together. There should be the ability to enjoy God's creation together. Shared friendships, hobbies, recreational activities, vacations, traveling. You should be partners at work with your spouse, sharing burdens, troubleshooting problems, working at home projects together, rejoicing in one another's successes in life. There should also be a spiritual unity that you experience, a partnership in the things of the Lord, praying together, studying together, reading scripture together, discussing life and doctrine together, serving the church together, ministering side by side together, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, raising children together, counseling other couples together. And then, of course, there's sexual intimacy, which is a blessing like the cherry on top of this marriage that you ought to enjoy in the covenant confines of the marriage bond. And this is a blessing, a good thing created by God to be enjoyed. And all of this is part of this one flesh union that God has given marriages. Now, I think many of us who hear all these things and go, wow, there's so much areas in my life I can grow. And listen, yes, all of us. But God's design is not that your spouse is over here running that way and you're over here going this way. You're living two entirely different lives. He's got his hobbies, she's got hers. He's got this thing going on on Saturdays, but I go do that thing on Saturdays. And the rest of the week, we don't really talk about what's going on. That's not the design. He's kind of doing his own thing. It's not really God's purpose for marriage. God's purpose is a full-hearted, comprehensive partnership. Not necessary that you are identical. Uh, not even necessary that you do all the same things geographically, travel to the same places, you go to work together and go to... It's not exactly how it works out in every situation. But the idea is that whatever you're doing, it's considered to be a dual enterprise. You're doing it together. So, so men, she's, she's not going to work with you necessarily, but she ought to know what's going on at work. And maybe the man's not staying home with the kids because the wife's at home doing that part of the job. But that doesn't mean that, men, you shouldn't care about what's going on there because you are partnering together and you're, it's both of your responsibility together to do life together as you weave life together in anything less than a life woven together and the bond of love and unity is less than God's design. Again, I would point you to the biblical book, the, the, the Song of Solomon, where marriage is presented as this picture of bliss and fulfillment and satisfaction And when we measure our marriages up against that one, we go, man, I'm falling short. And what what do we got to do in that situation? We humble ourselves. We repent where we've fallen short. And then we start going, okay, Lord, what are the building blocks of the biblical marriage? I think there's so many blueprints we ignore because we're just kind of doing things our own way. So here's a pitfall. Number four is that we're living different lives. We're supposed to be one flesh, one unit. 
but we're living different lives, different hobbies, different interests, different activities. Neither husband nor wife is willing to engage in one another's interests. They have different dreams, different aspirations, different goals, sometimes different bank accounts, and this is not God's design. Fifth pitfall under the same category, some of us are just really bad at communication, right? Sometimes it's not the bad intentions. It's not like we're trying to exclude the other from our things that are going on in our lives. We're trying to hold them out. Sometimes we just need to learn more biblical principles of communication. We need to learn to talk about the things that we're doing so that we can share life together. So, ladies, sometimes you be patient with your men because we're not always good at this. You've got to learn how to communicate. But men, you've got to start working on sharing what's going on in your lives. Sharing what's going on at work, sharing the things you're thinking about, sharing the things you're learning. And if you're really struggling on that front, there's practical help you can get from other people in the church as you wrestle with how to apply biblical principles to your own marriage. And I would encourage you to do that. We're going to wrap up. You know, maybe there's been things you're thinking about going, okay, there's a lot of things we need to address here in our lives It might be that you're thinking, man, there's pitfalls. Like I got one foot in one and another foot in the other pitfall and and my hand's in that pit hole and my other hand's in that one. I got like all these pitfalls are part of my issues. And if that's the case, let me just remind you that there is hope. Man, the Bible is, is is an expression of the love of God. God wants to conform us into his character and so he gives us his word to direct us. And so as we encounter these principles, we can go, okay, God has actually spoken to these issues. I can start putting into place and start uh, being obedient to these blueprints that God has given us so we can build a better marriage. Now, it's just a matter of humbling ourselves in repentance, recognizing that my sin really has made a mess of things, looking to Christ for forgiveness, and then understanding I can begin walking in a way that is going to address these issues. If, if that's you, if you need to talk about some of these things, and I dare say every single married couple should talk about some of these things, because I think they're all part of the blueprints of a healthy marriage, and if you've talked about them before, it might be worth revisiting. I would recommend a few things. One, humble yourself. If there are any problems in your marriage that are going to be fixed, they're not going to be fixed by wagging your finger in self-righteousness at your spouse. That must go. Second, set aside a time to talk. Now, don't try to wing it in the kitchen tonight. Maybe you should set aside a time to go through these things with more attention to detail where you can actually listen to one another without being interrupted. Think through carefully what you would want to say. Maybe you let someone babysit your kids so you can have uninterrupted time. This is your marriage. You don't want to lose it. It's a precious gift, and it can be glorious. And then last, we put together that sheet that's in your handout. Married couples, I would encourage you to read through that with your spouse. Consider the questions there talk through them. And then if it's getting a little too hard to really address those, table it. And I'd say call some Christian friends that are mature, that, can, that you admire their marriage, and let them help you with it as well. We're here to help each other. None of us has it all figured out, but God has put us in a church where we can grow together.
You know, why do we make such a big deal out of marriage? Well, Jesus is laying these foundations, and we want to unpack the implications for our lives. But there's a greater thing at stake here. You know what it is? In Ephesians 5, 31, Paul quotes the same passage that Jesus is quoting here. Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the same passage in Genesis. But then Paul writes this. Listen to this. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what he's getting at. The way a man and a woman come together in marriage, husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, wife submitting to her husband as the church does to Christ, both gladly, willingly laying their lives down for each other. When that happens, it is pointing to something profound, transcendent. It is pointing to the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. So when marriages are falling apart, they are not communicating what they're intended to communicate about our Savior. In other words, the glory of Christ is on the line in your marriage. You want Christ to be magnified in your life. So live in a marriage that puts on display the love of Christ. Marriages should be like this. A person who has never really got an understanding of the gospel, doesn't really know what sacrificial love is like, looks at the husband and says, oh, that's what sacrificial love is like. That's what commitment is like. That's what a relationship of love and trust and joy looks like. And as they understand that, they're understanding something profound about Jesus himself. And the last thing is this, that the hope of your marriage is Jesus' marriage. Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. He will not forsake you. He will not give up on you. He is not finished with you. He will not divorce you. He will not abandon you. Jesus is committed to his bride, the church. He has died for her. He has been raised from the dead for her. He is at the right hand of the Father for her, ever interceding for his bride, the church. He's not giving up on the church. And if you are part of Christ's church and your marriage is rocky, remember Jesus is not giving up on you. And today could be the beginning of some amazing transformation in your own personal life and in your marriage as you conform it to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we first praise you for your love for us. Lord, it is amazing to remember that you love the church, Christ. You died for the church. You saved the church. And Lord, you live as head of the church. You intercede for the church. And our hope is in you and not ourselves. So, Lord, as we seek to conform our marriages to your will, we don't do so with, with hopelessness and despair. We do so knowing you conquered death. That you are omnipotent. You bring dead things to life. And if our marriage is dead, then we know that you and you alone are the only thing that can bring it to life. Lord, we look to you. I pray that as a result of this study, that marriages would be strengthened, parenting would be given biblical wisdom, 
that we would have a foundation for the family here, that we would be able to be on the mission you've given us and raise children the way you've called us to, in a way that honors you and builds up the kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name.